Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Okay, we are recording. This is a little different for us this week because Bill Sutton, who normally does our Zoom recordings for our podcast, is on vacation this week. It seems like a lot of people are on vacation this week. We're people catching up at our organization. I think yeah. we've, we've gone so long without vacations and uh, I'm going to be taking one myself here in the next week or two. So, oh. yeah. So sitting on the couch for a year is not a vacation, Joe? It's, you know what, the last year of work you could argue has been, uh, I've been doing a lot of staycation working. So where are you thinking of going when you go on your vacation? Um, I th- It'll be a staycation. However, I do believe uh, we may sneak back to where we come from and maybe pop in to visit family and friends. The CDC these days is saying it's probably going to be safe for us to do that since we'll be vaccinated. So we, we may, we may, just make a quick trip somewhere just to pop in and say hello to some folks we haven't seen since last Christmas. And I mean, Christmas, 2019. So So maybe if you do that, I should like jump in the car with you because my people live not much further than your people. And that's true. I have people who are trying to get me to come back for a visit um, in early May. I will say that with a great deal of optimism, uh, we rebooked our golfing trip that me and my usual golfing buddies take uh, to Myrtle Beach that we had to cancel last year. We rebooked it for May. And now it looks like all of us are going to be fully vaccinated and able to make that trip in May. So I'm actually excited about that too. Just a couple of days, but it's always a good time. That's fun. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's interesting today um, on the podcast, it's just you and me this point for the moment at least i hope we may get brendan at some point the yeah. the inside story is brendan is actually getting his vaccine today yes. uh it's taking a little longer than he expected so he's missing our podcast but that's good reason to miss our podcast so with us today is joe shaw hey joe hey i'm joe shaw executive editor and i'm annette hinkle and i'm the arts and living editor and I think we have uh, another editor who's getting their vaccination today as well. So that's right. So yeah. it's so it's uh, yeah. Did I just break HIPAA laws by telling people that Brendan's getting a vaccine? <laughs> I think Brendan would probably be happy to let people know he's getting a vaccine. I yeah, think. I don't think that that's going to be a problem. I think that I'll that's- settle with him out of court. It's yeah. all right. <laughs> so um, this so you're going to have to do a lot of talking today, Joe, because the topic we're talking about is something that you know far better than I do, um, which is about oh. the police department, right? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I and the truth is, uh, you know, it's an interesting topic. It's about the police reform measures uh, that the local police departments have been doing uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, that all came in response to Governor Andrew Cuomo's order, of course, which was uh, that every department in the wake of George Floyd, uh, the, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and of course, that trial is happening this week. So this is a timely topic. After that, and after the protests that came out of of that untimely death, uh, every police department in New York State has to undertake this re- reform process. 
Uh, on the east end, of course, uh, you know, it's interesting because the western part of Suffolk County is mostly served by the Suffolk County Police. But out here, we have the individual police departments. So there's a lot of departments that have been undergoing this process uh, over the last couple of months. And uh, they're all wrapping up now. I believe the reports were due this week and uh, the processes are kind of coming to a close. You know, it, it's, it's been interesting, uh, the conversations that have taken place in Southampton and East Hampton in particular. The committees that were formed often involved some of the people in the community who are most affected by the issue. And, and so they were able to, to raise some of those issues with the police departments directly. And they also did this at the village level. So it wasn't just the Southampton town and East Hampton town police who looked at procedures, but each village had its own sort of review as well. Is that true? Yeah. Every single department had to, had to conduct a review and submit a report to the state. It's interesting because some of the reviews, I think they were undertaken with the idea being that there was real reform needed. And, and I think there were some conversations about that. You know, with anything like this, when you have a variety of departments involved, I think you have, you're going to have different levels of success in an effort like this. In Southampton town, the town police department did its review and um, had a fairly sizable committee and, and met regularly and discussed. West Hampton Beach Village, of course, had one. Southampton Village, Sag Harbor, Quag, uh, all the village departments, East Hampton Town and Village both had different gatherings. I think there were some themes across the board. I think there were some, there was a lot of conversation about uh, the diversity of the police forces of itself and whether that's there something. There isn't any. I mean, there's not very much diversity, I'm guessing is what they. There, there's some in some departments, but I think probably one of the things that the spotlight turned up is that each of the departments doesn't necessarily reflect the uh, balance in the community that it's policing. Another thing that was a big topic of conversation with the departments was body cameras. Ah. Um, and I find this particularly intriguing, and this is just purely editor editorializing on my part, which is, I think that sounds great. And I think police body cameras are certainly, they've proven to be an essential tool in police reform. But these departments on the East End, I think are going to learn the the magnitude of a commitment to using police body cameras because it's not just the equipment it's trying to maintain a database of all of the video and once you commit to doing that that is a full-time job because it's like monitoring so, comments on a website <laughs> it's very much and and, and maybe worse because yeah. You have to hold on to those videos. You have to catalog them so that they're available. And if somebody wants a police video from a certain incident, you have to be able to access that and provide it in some format. That's going to take manpower to do. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a fairly expensive thing for any department to do, let alone if multiple departments decide to do it, they're going to each need someone probably to handle that. It's, it's, it's a big undertaking. And while a couple of the departments have identified body cameras as being one of the steps that may come out of this, I wonder if that will turn out to be the case in, in the end because of the expense of it. I kind of remember this conversation like more than 10 years ago, um, the whole idea of body cameras. And yeah, exactly that. It's like the whole idea of 
you know, somebody having to go through hours and hours of footage if there's like a five second incident. You know, it's sort of like <laughs> reminds me of those ghost hunter shows where they have to sit yeah. there and watch an empty room <laughs> hoping that something's going to move, you know? It's and like, it's even more than that because think about it. You don't necessarily know until weeks later that that certain 30 seconds of, of police footage is essential in a case because <clears throat> maybe something happened in the background mm -hmm. and now you find out that you, you really do need that, that footage. If you've, if you have some type of a system where you're constantly holding video footage for a while and then, and then getting rid of it to make right. room for new footage, you'll lose that ability and it yeah. defeats the purpose of it. Yeah, so it's, it's not like it's, those, those closed circuit cameras that just like after <clears throat> two days end up re-recording over the same yeah exactly but and i think the other interesting thing is like 15 years ago when this first came up though you didn't have as many like citizen journalists about now everybody's got a cell phone camera so that's the other thing that really kind of complements com complicates the whole thing you know it's a really great point and and the other thing is it's fair to say that local departments are in a little different situation than a big city police department and um, but you could argue that either way, it's also true that incidents involving local departments are probably less apt to have somebody standing nearby filming the interaction. So, uh, body cameras might be more important for smaller departments in some ways, but there's a lot to work out there with that. But the, the other issue, of course, that came up, um, and it came up, um, in a fairly significant way in Southampton village has to do with complaints against police officers by civilians. And it, it led to a larger conversation there because <clears throat> there wasn't much of a response from the community to this conversation. The, the committee that formed in Southampton Village held meetings, invited the public to speak and to come forward with their thoughts about what needed to happen with the department. They didn't get a lot of response despite their attempts to, to get that. And I think what happened was one of the police officials said at, at a meeting, well, that just goes to show you everybody's very satisfied with the policing that's happening. I actually think that that is one way you could interpret that. Yeah. That no one felt strongly enough to come forward and, and speak up. But the point was also made by committee members that it can be seen as, as a sign that people are afraid to step forward. And, and this is a red flag all by itself that, that we aren't getting any response from the community. Uh, it demonstrates that, that they fear uh, a backlash and a fallout if they, if they step forward. And I think that's an unresolved question. And, and unfortunately, I think with a lot of the departments, this process you know, it's tough to gauge, but I think some departments went through this process a little more grudgingly than others. And some police chiefs were a little more open to the concept than others. And I think some of them, by the way, were very open to the idea of having this conversation. And, and I've heard comments from some of the police chiefs that were legitimately about things they learned in the process and things that they hope to address. But I've also heard that, you know, um, we did our radio show this week uh, and we spoke with Denise Civiletti, who runs Riverhead Local, the, the website that covers Riverhead. And then she talked a little bit about the Riverhead Police Department and that the bulk of the responses that they got from their survey came from middle-aged white residents of Riverhead. And I think that bears out with some of the surveys that were done in the local departments as well. And obviously, middle-aged white 
residents of the community are not really the focus of the police reform effort. The police reform effort is about how people of color and, and people in underserved parts of the community are being treated by the police. And I, we may not have gotten anywhere close to where we should have gotten uh, yeah. with, with that as part of this process. You know, it kind of reminds me of what they go through, like it, like with the military now, you know, like with sexual assaults in the military and that sort of thing. And just that a lot of people who would, would be inclined to bring um, a case or raise issues are afraid to do so because often they're report, they're reporting their incidents to the people who have power over them, you know? And um, I think that well, there's some, some talk about maybe forming a committee where people could go with issues or complaints without actually having to go to the police themselves. You know, you're reporting questionable conduct to the very officials who oversee those who engaged in the conduct. You know what I mean? You know, some of the departments locally have actually taken that to heart and have adopted plans. And I, I want to say it was Southampton Village, actually, that, that adopted a proposal where complaints can actually go to other village officials rather than the police department. Um, and I think that's probably a step in the right direction. And, and, you know, the conversation that's worth having, too, is I think the process that, that, that was undertaken at all of these the different departments was flawed. I think everybody knew that going in. Um, the process was criticized to start with because I think a, a lot of the police officers and the police chiefs felt like it was the governor posturing to some degree by calling for, for this process in order to respond to the protests. And that it hadn't, I know at least one local police chief sort of confided to me that the whole process had a tone of there is a problem in these departments that we need to fix. And some of the police chiefs took that, they took great exception to that and said that they actually do take this very seriously and have been doing a lot over the years to try and address the very issues that this was meant to uncover. And the process seemed not to acknowledge that. It was designed to find problems where mm -hmm. they say the problems had already been identified and addressed. So, uh, you know, I think it was a flawed process, but the question is maybe just turning the light on these conversations and having these conversations provides some benefit because it's, it's a chance to talk about it and, and think about it and uh, to ask, the, you know, you, you get to ask the questions, whether you get the answers you want uh, is a different thing. And whether you take the opportunity to ask the questions is a different thing too. Did you find that there were any departments that did better at addressing this or really advancing the conversation than others? Like, was there any anything that came out of this that you were like, wow, that's really good. They really made some progress here or were a good example of how this could work? While I think we were a little critical of the Southampton Village process because of the interpretation of the lack of participation and how that was going, I do think that was a good example of the sort of crucible of the process maybe providing a benefit. There was a discussion of all of this and, and I think that will be the benefit that comes out of it. I think in at the Southampton town level, you know, uh, I think that conversation was a healthy one, but I think it also 
had a lot to do with um, Chief Stephen Skrinecki, who is the police chief, uh, who came in from Nassau County a few years ago. And he has actually, and, and I, can, I can certainly vouch for it, that he's made some efforts to reach out to some of the different communities he serves and to, to uh, get some roots in those communities and plant some seeds and have these conversations over the last couple of years. He's done that, no question. And so the process was used in part to highlight some of the things that that department was doing. So I think it depends on the way the departments approach the process, but I think every one of them really did undertake it with some degree of uh, sincerity to try and at least take a, take a look at the issue. I think most departments are wary about acknowledging problems because, hey, you know, look, the sad truth is when you start to acknowledge problems, you start to uh, assign some liability too. And, and I, think, I think to some degree, the process may have made a lot of the uh, police departments defensive. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see a ton of that. I think most of the police chiefs I think took the process for for what it was intended to be. Um, the The big question out of this, though, um, the cynic in me says, what is really going to be the ultimate result here? And I think that's where the focus should be. I don't I don't know what's going to actually change. The complaints that they did get, I'm guessing, were probably things like racial profiling. I'm, I imagine in traffic stops and things like that. Was that you know when it came to the criticisms that the departments faced? Um, in some of these meetings or open forums. I'm just wondering, was that the sort of thing that was bothering community members who spoke? Yeah, I I think that was the primary thing that was brought up by a lot of members of the panels that were formed, but also people who spoke up before the the committees at the public hearings. They talked about racial profiling and they talked about the different ways. You know, that that was sort of at the center of the Southampton Village discussion too, was a lot of comments were made about how the police interacts with the public. And there were people of color on that panel who spoke and said, you don't understand the difference for people of color and how they interact with the police. And and I think, again, I think that's true. And I think that was a flawed part of the process, but it also gave them a chance to, to make that point. And, and I think it was, it was a pretty compelling uh, point, but will it change anything? I know at least one department talked about starting to keep more records about the race and ethnicity of people that are pulled over to see if there are any trends that emerge that need to be looked at a little more closely. You know, I guess there's some benefit to that. But so let's just take a step back for a second and say if there was institutional racism that existed in these departments prior to this process. Did anything happen in that process to directly address that and maybe to begin to, 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 to make it go away? I'm less confident of that. And, and maybe that's asking too much. You know, maybe this really was to some degree a manufactured process and you can't expect sweeping change to come out of it. Maybe it was just a step in the right direction. Or maybe just pointing it out, maybe they don't, I mean, maybe some officers don't even realize they're, you know, I think there's a lot of unconsciousness in the way that they operate, you know, maybe this will just make them a little more aware when they yeah, exactly. decide to do something. I think it's, you know, it may potentially at least put, make an awareness of, of the situation. It may put it in the police officers' minds uh, and, and that may change 
Um, but even more than policy change, that may just have an effect uh, in the real world. Uh, we'll, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I wonder. I, I mean, I think, I don't know, just trying to th- puzzle this out. It seems to me that maybe a really good thing to put in place would be sort of um, a community liaison, you know, from from the community that is feels like it's often targeted by the police, you know, just just introducing the two parties. It may, you know, having having like a representative from the communities that often feel profiled or have negative interaction with the with the police. If there could maybe be a little bit more dialogue between them, so it doesn't yeah. feel like the police are in an ivory tower and that. I mean, it's intimidating. You know, it's intimidating for for people to walk into a police station. I mean, you know. Just- and there are organizations that informally have, have started playing that role. I know Ola certainly plays that role in the uh, Spanish-speaking community. And that, that, that goes to the point that Ola has been, uh, and Chief Skrinecki from Southampton Town Police, has been working directly with Ola for, for a couple of years now uh, on a bunch of different programs. And Ola, in turn, Minerva Perez of, of Ola, has been reaching out to the police departments to talk about translation services for when, when someone is pulled over. And they will take up the cause of someone who has a complaint uh, and sort of serve in that, in that um, advocacy role. Um, I think the Black Lives Matter folks, um, in addition to the protests, I think we're, we're certainly involved in, in trying to help people who, who had issues with the police departments. And, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think that what we're talking about here, and, and I hesitate to, to make sweeping, sweeping statements because um, they're really just based on anecdotal evidence. And I am a middle-aged white man, and I'm not sure I should be the one that, that should be opining on it. But I think it's a lot of microaggressions. And it's, it's little things that happen that, uh, that the conversations that, that happen away from the public when someone's pulled over or, or a call comes in and, and the police are responding to it. Um, that's where these things take place. And they may be subtle. It may not be overt. It may not be something that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily rising to a situation where someone's injured. Uh, it's just, it doesn't change, though, the, the potential that there's some uh, inherent racism in the way the department's doing its job. I actually, I actually had a personal experience with that probably 15, 20 years. I won't say which village it was in, but um, Adam and I were coming home from the city and we had an old van that had kind of like tint, like dark windows and big fat tires. It was a little rumbly. And we used to take that into the city. It was our, our less, our less good car, you know, and um, his truck was parked in the, in a, in a lot in the village. And we drove through at about 11 o'clock on a Sunday night. And as soon as we got into the village, we were tailed by a cop, followed us all the way through the village, all the way around and back to the lot where the, our car was parked that I was going to drive home. And as soon as we stopped, the bright light came out of the car shined right on us right i jumped out of the passenger seat and as soon as they saw that i was a white girl light went out they just drove off not a word no kidding didn't no even kidding. interact with you didn't know well, interact, so you go. no questions there you go i mean it's the kind oh. of incident that may happen all the time and and that's a sign of of a real potential problem there no question yeah 
Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Brendan O'Reilly just joined us. Hey, Brendan, how are you? Hi, Annette. I'm Brendan O'Reilly. I'm the features editor. You got your vaccine? I got my vaccine. I I went to CVS in Southampton Village. I was in and out. Good. Cool. What'd you get, Moderna or Pfizer? Pfizer. Pfizer. Yeah, I'm a Pfizer. I'm a Pfizer girl. Me too. You're a Pfizer girl? (laughs) Yeah, I'm a Pfizer girl. Yeah, I... My second Pfizer shot didn't, I didn't have much reaction to it either. I had like none. Well, they say that younger people with stronger immune systems may have more. So Brendan, I expect you'll be laid up for a day or two after. Well, I'm still in the 15 minute observation window. Oh, you are? If I collapse, (laughs) call 911. Yeah, I'd hope that the the cops show up after what we've just been saying about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Brendan, we just talked a little bit about the, the police process. Do you think we'll see any real change? I think if we have departments uh, forced to diversify their police forces, uh, so they're not just you know 95% white men, uh, and actually have uh, people that look like the community on the police force, I think there will be a change. I think that is important, um, and it's one of those things that gets overlooked. Like when you look at the demographics of a town and you look at the demographics of the police force, if they don't match up. Like, obviously they don't need to be perfect, but if the police force doesn't reflect the community, it's hard for them to police that community uh, in a manner in which they'll be trusted and that people feel like they're on the same team as the police. Because in a lot of minority communities, people feel like the police are the other team. What about that? What about the discussions of, of trying to, I mean, I don't know if it's such an issue out where we live, but the idea of um, you know, spreading money out to more like social services or social workers to show up when there's like a mental health emergency rather than sending the police. You know, that's been an incident, incidents where we've seen across the country where somebody might be having a mental issue and the police come in with a lot of force and it often doesn't turn out well because you have somebody who's dealing with something on a much different level. I just wonder, was there any discussions about putting more money toward that kind of policing or helping the police deal with those sorts of emergencies. I know that that's been a discussion on the state level and even on the federal level of an aim to get away from a armed police response to a mental health crisis, but there's challenges to this. Can we really have 24 seven on-call social workers that can show up? And the first time that a social worker shows up instead of a police officer, and that social worker, you know, ends up getting stabbed or shot or killed or beaten. Um, there it goes. Then that entire concept is out the window. And as as much as we know that there's situations that don't require a police response, we know that there will be situations where a police response will be required. And it's really hard to know what that is, um, you know, until help arrives. Uh, we do need to think about having our police officers better trained to dealing with mental, uh, mental health crises. Uh, and also, you know, we have ambulances that respond to these. Ambulances often show up to address people in physical distress 
and I'm sure a lot of EMTs will tell you that they've been trained on how to deal with an agitated person. Uh, and there's clearly more we could do. I don't know that we fix that in our communities or statewide with these reform plans uh, that had to be adopted this month, but I think we're moving in that direction. Uh, and you know, we ask for a lot from police officers. They are asked to be therapists. They are asked uh, to often be the EMTs before the EMTs show up. So it's one more thing to ask police officers to do well and it is a lot to ask for them. So if we can make civilian positions to do that, it takes the burden off police officers, lets them deal with crime and not just people in distress. That should be a goal. It's budget friendly uh, and it will improve community relations and it will improve outcomes. You know, there, this is another great point too, that, that, you know, what Brendan's talking about, he's absolutely right. This is a federal, national, state, conversation that needs to be had. And I think one of the complaints about this process is with all due respect to everyone who took part in the process at every one of these departments, because there were a lot of folks who put a lot of time and energy into having this discussion, but you're not going to solve those major problems with this conversation. There's bigger conversations that need to be had. And this is no replacement for any of those conversations. This, what Brendan just outlined, I think is, is an enormous problem that probably wasn't even broached in most of these conversations because it's too big. You're not going to come up with a solution for that. But I can say that during my tenure in Southampton, um, one of the local departments had one of these incidents where, where a man died, uh, where the police responded to a mental health situation. And uh, during the course of restraining and, and taking him into custody, uh, the man died. And, and so it, it demonstrates that those things happen every single day in these departments too. And that needs to be addressed as well. But, but it doesn't, it, I think this was focused more on the the idea of trying to trying to get to the injustice that takes place um and and i'm just not sure we fixed any of that with these processes and again that's no that's not a reflection on any of the people involved i just think it's a big it's a big question to try and solve with a couple of months of of study that that was forced on you by the governor Right. I guess the big hope is maybe it at least at the very least maybe opened up some new lines of communication between parties who had not really had much um, communication with the police departments in the past. Like maybe there's some new avenues for discussion. Yeah, Brendan, go I was going to say, Brendan, a couple of the, the local organizations have reached out to the police departments and had some success in doing that. I think we have seen, right, the uh, NAACP chapter for Eastern Long Island and also the OLA of Eastern Long Island, the Organization of uh, Latin Americans, uh, all participating at least in one of our many municipalities. You know, there's something for people outside of the East End that they might not understand is that even though we're in Suffolk County, we're not served by the Suffolk County Police Department. The five East End towns each have an individual town police department and within those towns, there are several village police departments. If there is a homicide, then yes, Suffolk County homicide will show up. But short of that, short of a bomb scare, it's our local departments that are serving us. The Suffolk County Police District is only the Western towns. So when we talk about reform plans, it's not like Suffolk County where you know, they come up with one plan and it's dealing with uh, tens of thousands of people. 
we have to deal with a plan for a village with a population of 3,000, a village with a population of 1,800, a village with a population of 7,000. Uh, so when they implemented these police reform plans, like the East End of Long Island is probably going to have a lot more plans per square mile than you'd see elsewhere in the state. I think in the end, each of these villages and towns, if they're going to weigh whether or not this process was successful, they need to do one very important thing, and that's to reach out to people of color and to Spanish speaking people in their communities and see what they thought of the process and, and ultimately in six months to a year, whether they've seen any changes. Um, I think that's hard to do and I'm not sure, I'm not confident each of the towns and villages will do that, but that's really the only way in the end that you're gonna be able to evaluate this entire undertaking and whether it had any, whether it did any good or not. Do you feel like there was any, I mean, I don't know if we can really even quantify this, but do you feel like there were some departments that were way more open to, to changes than others? You know, I think we talked a little bit about how sometimes it can, they, they can be a little, they can, people can get a little defensive when you're debating these issues. But I just wondered, was there any like real um, bright spot out of these discussions? I will say that we had one um, individual uh, involvement with this, and this was with the Southampton Town Police as part of their process. Um, I had actually approached the committee with a concern that we've been working with the police department for a while now to try and address what we believe are shortcomings in the access to information through the police department, the Southampton Town Police Department. Of all of the departments on the East End or on, on the South Fork that we deal with, um, we have probably the most trouble um, with a consistent policy from them with how we access information. And it continues to this day, full disclosure, but um, we've been working on it and we will continue to work on it with them. And they have been uh, willing to have conversations about it. But I did want that to be part of the conversation about what needs to change as part of this reform package. It wasn't included in the final report. Uh, until I spoke up and then they said some language was going to be added about it. But my point was not to demonize anybody, but just to make the point that if we're, if we're cataloging what needs to happen, this is something that needs to happen with the town police department. And Brendan, I think, can back me up on this, that, um, that access to information, it's a subtle thing that needs to be addressed as well as part of the bigger package of reforms that are needed in these police departments. Mm -hmm. Well, I could tell you that from 10 years ago to now, the kind of information and the breadth of the information that we get, it's not gotten better, it's gotten worse. It used to be that all the reporters would go into the police station on a certain morning and there would be a stack of arrest reports and a stack of incident reports, and there would be some redactions, but you're assuming that you're getting most everything that happened that week. You're assuming you're getting every arrest and every incident report. Maybe some things are being held back because they're still subject to investigation, or maybe there are uh, legitimate privacy concerns that protect victims by law that they can't give those arrest reports to us. But those kind of arrest reports are rare. We used to get all of these. Uh, in the past couple of years, when I've had reporters turn in police blotters and I say, well, this is kind of light. Where are all the incidents? And like, well, they only had three incidents. I'm like, well, how did we go from having, you know, 30, 40, 50 incidents a week to go through in a summer week to now having three, three incident reports to go through in a summer week? 
uh, obviously the flow of information has seized. And, you know, some of the things that police have to report to us are optional. Some of the things are mandatory. There are protections that they can employ by saying, well, this is part of an ongoing investigation and releasing this information will interfere in the investigation, but they don't have to employ that. So sometimes the police departments by law have to release things that they just don't release anyway. Sometimes it's a you may rather than you shall. A transparent police department leans toward if I may release this, I'm going to release it. And a police department that is less transparent says I only may release this so I don't have to and I'm not going to. And I hasten to clarify too that we as a news agency have discretion as well. And we will work with a police department that tells us, look, if you release this information, it'll damage our investigation. A suspect may get away. It may do damage to uh, a victim. We'll certainly, we're open to, to that, but we can't just have the police department make those decisions for us and say information that we would have a right to have an access to they just don't give it to us and make that decision for us. That's not acceptable because we have seen, and I, you know, I won't get specific, but we have seen examples of information that's withheld to protect various parties that the police department wanted to protect um, from, from, you know, from having information get out to the public. And that's not acceptable. We, okay. we can't, we can't let that happen. It's, it's convincing the police departments that they do have a responsibility to provide certain kinds of information. And that's a debate that's ongoing. Well, let's see what happens going forward. This will be interesting. Stay tuned because there could be more coming down this potential pike here. Maybe. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good topic. No question. Right. Drive carefully this weekend. Don't get arrested. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you'll be reading about it in the paper. <laughs> Great. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sacharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.